Our first reading is from Mark chapter 14, reading from verse 43. Immediately before this, Jesus has been giving his final words to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he has just told him that his betrayer is approaching. Mark 14, verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Jesus said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving the garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another one not made with human hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him away and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You are also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the cock crowed the second time, and Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Afternoon everyone, and just to explain, this isn't going to be uh, a normal exposition, but rather we're going to walk step by step through the Passion of the Christ. And we're going to start in Mark chapter 14 and verse 43, 
and go through to Mark chapter 15 and verse 41. There'll be four short talks, the first one rather longer than the next three. And as we go to Jerusalem on this this first Good Friday, uh, we're going to ponder and meditate and have the time to think and to pray about uh, the events of that first Good Friday and the profound depths of the cross of Christ. And uh, we're going to start with Jesus' arrest, uh, and then we'll go through his, uh, I suppose, his pre-trial in front of the high priest and the denial uh, from Peter. Uh, And I'd like you, if you can, to try and read this and to think about this as if you've never read it before, as if you're coming to this afresh. It's probably hard to do that, but these events are extraordinary. These events are really climactic, and they bear coming to them with a fresh mind and a fresh heart. And so Jesus has been uh, agonising in prayer over what he will be going through the next day. And then at the end of that, we see in verse 43, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. And they're led by Judas who had uh, arranged this uh, backhander, I suppose you might call it. And he's one of the twelve. He's been with Jesus for three years or thereabouts. He's been with God, having taken flesh for that time as well. He's experienced Jesus. He knew Jesus. But we're going to see here that he still managed to do this, to betray Jesus. And we're going to see running through here uh, this this theme of, of desertion. Jesus, in the end, being left completely alone. And uh, Judas had deserted him mentally. And here it comes to to the top of that as he leads this crowd who have come to arrest Jesus and to take him off, uh, first of all, to the chief priest. But then we're also going to see Peter. He's very brash and foolhardy here. Uh, At verse 47 there, John's Gospel tells us that this was actually Peter. One of those standing near drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Um, But by the end of the chapter, he is disowning and deserting Jesus. Uh, And then the rest of the disciples, Mark doesn't even call them disciples. Look at verse 50 here. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Those would have been the disciples. But they're not named in that way by Mark here. They're literally followers, but that's exactly what they weren't doing, as they too desert Jesus. And then there's a young man in verse 51. The young man, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Uh, We don't know, but most people think that was probably Mark. Again, fleeing in embarrassment, apart from anything else. And uh, uh, But we can't be sure, but we think it probably was. And Jesus, in the end there, being deserted by everyone. And so he walks the road to the cross alone, desperately alone. Now, for us at this time of Corona, COVID-19, maybe we're stuck in at home. Maybe we're finding that quite difficult. Maybe we're actually feeling quite lonely as well. That is an experience and a feeling which was here shared deeply by Jesus. 
And as we come to this weekend, we just remember first here that Jesus was entirely lonely. No friends, no one to call, no phones or texts or emails or Instagram messages or anything on that front at all. He was totally and completely deserted. But he's also uh, going to go, and Jesus is going to go and make uh, an extraordinary declaration. So the stories are interwoven here. So we see Peter, for instance, in verse uh, 54, uh, followed him at a distance. That's followed Jesus at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And then we catch up with him in verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, and then we go on to his uh, denial but Jesus is taken here to the high priest. Uh, some call it a trial. It wasn't really. Some call it a pre-trial. I'm not sure it was even that. Uh, it was just simply something brought up. They had to get together and to, uh, to, to try and get Jesus to make a, a public admission on which they could take him uh, to the Roman authorities. But uh, there is nothing legal about this. It would be wrong to call it any kind of a trial. It's at night for a start. It was illegal to meet in that way and to have a court meeting at night time. But the problem here for the Jewish folks here is that they they wanted Jesus executed. More of that in just a moment. Um, But the Romans couldn't really care less about the things that were really important for the Jews. So uh, if they'd gone to Romans and said, this man Jesus is a blasphemer, the Romans would have said, well, so what? We don't care. And uh, if they'd gone saying, well, this man Jesus claimed to be a false prophet, then the Romans would have said, really? We don't really bother about that either. So those wouldn't have been grounds in order to get Jesus executed, which is what they were uh, really hoping for. Um, but if they, if, they, if they go on and go to the Romans and go to Pilate, as we'll see in just a little while, claiming that Jesus was actually the king of the Jews, the king then the Romans would have taken that very seriously, because that's a threat, that's a rebellion, that's treason, that's execution time. And so what was the Jewish problem with Jesus? Well, the bottom line is, they thought Jesus was a false prophet. They thought Jesus was leading Israel astray. And there are plenty of Old Testament warnings uh, which they were taking very seriously. Um, so in verses 55 and 56, for instance, uh, they, they, <coughs> they, it says here they were uh, looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. They didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. But more specifically, they've got big problems about what Jesus said about the temple. So if you look at verses 57 to 59 here in chapter 14, uh, then some stood up, gave their false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. And uh, uh, Jesus had said that a temple was under judgment, that it was going to be destroyed. And the Jews didn't like that at all, understandably. Now, Jewish folks get a a bad press on Good Friday, but you can absolutely understand why they're so concerned about this man Jesus. The temple was the the very focus of their life, of their existence, of their religion. And Jesus is extremely threatening to them. And then the Jews saw Jesus as a false messiah. They really couldn't see that he was the messiah, uh, a false king. Now, Jesus knows that they know that if he says he's the Messiah, then they've got him. Because the Romans will crucify someone who's claiming to be the Messiah, the king. 
And so the high priest question in verse 61 is absolutely the key. The high priest, the end of verse 61, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus' reply in verse 62 is quite extraordinary. Verse 62, I am, said Jesus, taking uh, the words that God used of himself in Exodus chapter 3. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Extraordinary. And then he is quoting there uh, from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. He's alluding to uh, Psalm 110 uh, as he says verse 62. In other words, saying, yes. I am a true prophet. Yes, what I said about the temple will come true. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, you will see me vindicated. And yes, my vindication will mean that I share the throne of Israel's God. Now, those are extraordinary claims by Jesus. Uh, a guy called John White a few years ago, he said this, if it was God who was put to death, and that's what Jesus is claiming here, we can never call the cross trivial. Nothing of greater consequence has ever taken place. Now, one of uh, uh, the commentators wrote this, Jesus, the Son of Man, stands before the official ruler of Israel, declaring that God will prove him, that is Jesus, to be in the right, and the court, that is the supreme court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, to be in the wrong. And the high priest is right in verse 64. He says, this is blasphemy. He's right, unless it's true. And then the question, which is as much for us as for the others in the court, which we see in verse 64, the end of verse 60, or the middle of verse 64 there, he says, what do you think? What do you think? Well, they all thought Jesus uh, was an imposter, that he was worthy of death, that these claims were not true. But what do you think? Who would you say Jesus is? And, of course, the Jewish folks there, thinking that Jesus was an imposter, of course they condemn him to death. They're probably thinking, wow, job done, that was easier than we thought it was going to be, perhaps. But not everyone on the Jewish ruling council would have agreed, at least not wholeheartedly, at that point. I'm sure, for instance, Joseph of Arimathea, who was the guy who buried Jesus, he was a member of this Sanhedrin, this ruling council. I'm sure uh, by the time Jesus had actually died, his mind would have been completely made up. Maybe it was at this point that there was actually here was someone who he really believed was the Messiah. Uh, I'm sure he and others would probably have been pondering quite deeply and quite carefully, or maybe disagreeing with what was being said uh, as they heard verse 62. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And meanwhile, down below in the courtyard, there's Peter. It's a cold night. Peter is by the fire. He's recognised by a rather persistent servant girl in verses 67 and then 69. Verse 67, uh, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus. And then in verse 69, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And three times, 
Peter denies knowing Jesus. And he's devastated. Peter, the, the figurehead of the disciples, the one who was the spokesman, if you like, very often. He was the one who was the leader of men. And he swore to them here uh, in the courtyard, I don't know this man you're talking about, in verse 71. Jesus, the true prophet, had predicted it. And now here it is. And it's devastating. And there, but for the grace of God, go you and I. Deserted, declaring, and now denied. Let's pause and be quiet for a few minutes. Mark chapter 15, reading from verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Well, the Jewish people think that they've nailed their man, that they need Pilate, if you may use this phrase, to nail him as well. Now, please, this is, this is not being anti-Semitic. Uh, uh, we can understand their whole religion, their whole system, their whole life, their nation is being threatened by Jesus here. So they're very, very, and naturally very, very difficult for them. And as we look at these next 15 verses in, in Mark chapter 15 now, in verses 1 to 15, the cross just looms over these verses very darkly. It casts a very dark shadow. Pilate, the Roman governor, he has the power to crucify. Crucifixions were uh, relatively common. Uh, there was some trouble, especially as Jesus was growing up, and he would probably have seen crucifixions up in Galilee. Uh, certainly at the time in AD 70, when there was all that trouble and ended up with the destruction of Jerusalem, there were uh, many, many thousands of crucifixions. In fact, so many, in the end, they ran out of wood. But while before they ran out of wood, they were getting a bit bored almost with the whole thing, and they were uh, experimenting with different positions, upside down, sideways, and so on. Crucifixions were quite common. But for Pilate at the Passover... 
the overriding desire would have been to stop any riots, to keep the peace. His superiors would have asked him when he next had to report back, so how was the pilot pass, uh, how was the Passover pilot? And did you keep the peace? Did you stop the riots? Because we know these Jewish folks, they get very keen about their religion and their nation at those times. Was it peaceful, Pilate? And so Jesus comes to him. And Pilate says to him in verse 2 here, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, if he says yes, then you need go no further. He's heading directly to a cross. But uh, Jesus replies, you have said so. And then there are many more accusations and there's no reply. And it's just like Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7. Where Isaiah, 700 odd years before Jesus, writes this. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And, and Pilate he sees a way out. So in uh, verse 6 here, now it was the custom at the festival. Now, custom, well, it's, um, it's quite likely it was just something that Pilate did. There's no record of this anywhere else. So this is quite possibly just Pilate's custom. So it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. And uh, uh, it was unjust, but it was very convenient. In fact, there's a very convenient way of getting rid of a very inconvenient man for Pilate, and he hoped to keep the peace. And so we have Barabbas, verse 7 here. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. And it's clear from that that Barabbas is guilty. But the crowd want Barabbas to go free. And Jesus the king of the Jews, or so he claimed, to be crucified. And this title, king of the Jews, keeps on coming up. It comes up here uh, six times in 32 verses, for instance. Uh, so, for instance, in verse 12, Pilate says, What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. It's just simple injustice all around. And all along for Jesus, isn't it? He should have been the one walking free. Everyone knew that Barabbas was guilty, and yet he was freed. And yet it's also a picture, not of just, of in, not of, it's not a picture of justice, but it's a picture of a swap. Of Jesus taking Barabbas' place, and Barabbas taking Jesus' place. The innocent takes the place of the guilty, and the guilty takes the place of the innocent. And that's a little picture for us of how the cross works, of how Jesus' death works for us. But with one crucial difference, pardon the pun, one crucial difference. It's just, it's fair, it's right. Because Jesus voluntarily voluntarily takes our place as God the King. He is the one offended against by our sin. And he propitiates the Father's wrath. So John Stott could write this. Uh, John Stott was a great Christian leader in the 20th century. And he wrote this. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. 
God himself, who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating, and God himself, who in the person of his son Jesus, died for the propitiation of our sins. Now, don't worry if you uh, uh, don't get that entirely. Perhaps there's more explaining to do. But it's important to note and to see and to understand that Jesus died for our sin as he took our place. He died where we should have been, just like he died where Barabbas should have been. And for us, it means for those who are caught up in a prison of sin, it means that we too can go free. Let's be quiet for a few minutes. Mark chapter 15, verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the predatorium, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Handed over is one of those little phrases which comes a number of times in these last chapters of Mark's Gospel. Uh, so, for instance, in chapter 15 and verse 1, it says this at the end of the verse, so they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. And then in verse 10, for instance, it's uh, talking about Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest and the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. And then it goes on in chapter 15 and verse 15, Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And in the following verses, we're going to see in this next section from verses 16 to 32 here, we see Jesus mocked time after time after time after time. And uh, he's been deserted. He's declared who he is. Uh, he has been denied. Uh, he has um, become a victim of appalling injustice. And he's now been handed over to be crucified. And now he is simply 
mocked ruthlessly. This is uh, rather like this chapter, chapter 15, rather like a photo album, one of those old-fashioned photo albums. And you can just turn the pages and look at the different scenes. And it seems that as the chapter goes on, it just goes faster and faster. So uh, in our next little section, our next little talk, it seems very rapidly, almost as if they're flicking over the pages. And uh, uh, although we probably want to slow down and take care and think and pray uh, and pause just to consider what we're reading. But here, it's getting ugly. It's getting very ugly. So, uh, verse 16, for instance, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They want to have some fun. They get everyone out because they, uh, they're not a great fan of the Jewish people. Um, the Jewish people have always been causing problems for the Romans, especially at times like the Passover. And, uh, and now here's one that we can have a go at, almost legally. So we're going to have some fun. That's probably what they're thinking. And uh, the mockery we see here is pretty cruel. But it's also quite ironic because there are many true things being spoken here. So, for instance, the purple robe, they put a purple robe on him. So it's not just what they're speaking, it's what they're doing. The purple robe uh, would have been something worn by kings and by senior nobles. They wore purple robes, emperors maybe as well. And then this crown of thorns. Well, not crowns of thorns, but emperors wore crowns. That's a picture of a crown of thorns, a picture of an emperor's diadem. And uh, uh, the emperors were thought to be divine. So by taking a crown of thorns and putting that on Jesus' head, by putting a a, a purple robe around his shoulders, uh, then they're really saying, uh, and you can see, they're just mocking him, but actually what if it's true? What if he really should be wearing a purple robe and a crown? Because Jesus is himself divine. What if they really are about to crucify God? Now, uh, also, We've got in verse, the end of verse 18, look at, the, look at the mockery here. They called, um, no, in verse 18, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. But what if Jesus was the King of the Jews? What if Jesus was not just the King of the Jews, but the King of everyone? What if that is true? Um, that's actually a, a very close parallel to the greeting that would you, you would use to Caesar, who, of course, considered himself to be divine, claim divinity. Uh, what if this was entirely appropriate to Jesus? What if actually they had taken the mockery out of those words and said them truthfully instead? It was all pretty horrible, wasn't it? And yet at the same time, in its ugliness, you can see shafts of light and shafts of truth. We see here mockery, humiliation, degradation, as they take Jesus up to Golgotha. And at Golgotha, there would have been the, most likely, there would have been the vertical posts of the cross. They had most likely been used before. And Jesus is going up there. And he would have should have been carrying the crossbeam to his cross, but he was too weak to go that. And so they, uh, uh, they grab a passerby. There's this guy, Simon, 
Uh, verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Uh, from Cyrene, that's in North Africa. Maybe he was born there, maybe he actually come from there from the Passover. That shows commitment. It's a long way. And it's, it's possible... Uh, that he is the Simon who's mentioned in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. There he's called Niger, the, the, the black guy. Uh, and if he came from Africa, he would have certainly have had a darker skin uh, than most of the guys around in Jerusalem in those days. Uh, and maybe, maybe that was the same guy. We don't know. But also it's clear from Mark's Gospel, as he writes, that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Uh, and those two guys would have been known, otherwise Mark wouldn't have mentioned that. Maybe, most likely, they were Christians. So perhaps Simon uh, became a Christian and uh, fathered those two sons who were brought up in a Christian household. And, uh, uh, and those, those, those guys, um, Alexander and Rufus, became Christians as well. Uh, who knows? Uh, but uh, it's interesting, there are other references to those guys. Uh, and verse 24, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was Cicero who wrote, This is the most cruel and terrible penalty, incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. And Jesus' mockery, the thread continues... The charge sheet, the king of the Jews in verse 26. But if he was, he'd fight. That's what kings do, surely. What kind of a king is this? And then in verse 29, <coughs> excuse me, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. They were hurling those insults at him. Uh, but that's exactly what is happening. Look at verse. Uh, look at verse twenty-nine here again. Look at verse twenty-nine. Come, if you're going to, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. Uh, we see here the irony in this, the truth in this, because uh, in saving others, Jesus can't. He won't. He deliberately won't save himself because he's dying for us, for us, for you and for me. And then in verse 32, more insults. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. But the irony, the truth there is this. Jesus wants you and me to see him on the cross. And he needs to stay on the cross for our redemption for our salvation so he's not going to come down he needs to be there to die for us and he wants us to believe in him on the cross dying for us for our salvation in our place as he took Barabbas's place as he's taking our place that's why he died that's why he stayed on the cross. The mockers got it all wrong. All wrong. But they teach us much truth. 
John Calvin wrote about these words. These matters call for secret meditation rather than for the ornament of words. So let's read this passage again and pray and consider these things as required. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah! Some ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Siloam. In Galilee these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. And this feels almost staccato. It feels like taking that, that photo album and just flicking through those pages very, very quickly. And we, we kind of feel like, I, I want to slow down and have a think and have a, have a pray about this. And that would certainly repay us slow thought and praying over each of these pictures, each of these individual scenes that we see here. Maybe over every individual phrase. And it's dark. It's supernaturally dark. And it's not just an eclipse. It's supernaturally dark to remind us of the evil that Jesus is dying for. To remind us that he is the light of the world, but he was cut off as he bore the punishment for our wrongdoing. And Jesus' cry in verse 34, it would quite likely have been um, quite terrifying, a real surprise for the, for the folks who were there watching. But uh, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, labak sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, uh, it's a question. And as uh, one of the guys writing about this uh, wrote, he wrote this, the question that God uses when forsaken by God, that God the Son uses when forsaken unthinkably by God the Father. Forsaken. As God the Father pours his wrath on his own son, who had become our sin, voluntarily, to bear our sin and to die our death. And some in the crowd 
thought that Jesus was calling Elijah. That's verses 35 and verse 36 here. But the true Elijah, John the Baptist, had already passed this way, the way of death. And now the Son of Man, through his own shame and his own suffering, now dies for our sin and opens the way of heaven. And then we suddenly flick to another picture, the temple. And there were a number of curtains in the temple uh, dividing off one part from another. It's most likely that this particular curtain was the one that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. That separated uh, the place which represented God's presence with his people. It was barred, it was closed, and it's now open. And there is access for anyone at any time to go there. Because of Jesus' death, the way back to God is now open. And all may enter. And this is also saying, the temple, it's as good as finished. It's as good as finished. It's redundant. Its purpose is gone. The role of the temple in bringing people to God through the repeated many sacrifices of, of hundreds, possibly thousands of animals, one after another after another, for the price, paying the price of the people's sin, that has now been overtaken and replaced by the young man who's just given his life on the cross of Golgotha extraordinarily wonderful day as we remember Jesus' death for our sins. And then verse 39, and this uh, centurion, uh, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. A battle-hardened thug, most likely, in a Roman uniform. Used to killing humans as we might swat a, a rather irritating fly on a summer's day, perhaps. And he says something quite, quite remarkable. Moments after Jesus' death, he says he was the son of God. The God we don't believe in. And uh, he is, this centurion is the first sane human being in Mark's gospel to call Jesus God's son and mean it. And he recognises Jesus as God's son in his death, the king who came to die for us. And Mark wrote his gospel to readers who include readers in Rome. And he wants to leave us with this. I believe he wants to leave them with this as well. If him, this Roman centurion, if him believing and declaring that Jesus is God's son in his death, if him, then why not you?